All right. We are going to start today's session with a conversation with Robert Weber, Managing Partner at Great North Lab. Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me today. All right, let's start by introducing our audience to yourself, talk a bit about your background and also to Great North Lab. Sure. So my name's Rob Arbor again. I live in, in the suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I uh, just turned 40 years old. I started building my first software companies as a teenager in the mid-90s and uh, successfully bootstrapped a company uh, which became known as NativeX uh, at our peak in 2012. Uh, my, my twin brother Ryan and I, uh, we achieved $70 million in revenue and $10 million in EBITDA. Uh, we used uh, we had multiple exit events from this startup. Uh, the only money we raised was a small $320,000 angel round back in 2000, right in the dot-com bus. So we kind of learned a thing or two about resiliency, you know, going through that recession, which is kind of relevant, I think, today. But we, when we had our first exit event at age 25, my twin brother Ryan and I formed a family office, began making early-stage investments, into kind of local and regional tech entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, once we exited the last of our operating business, we decided uh, about, uh, it's actually been three years ago to launch our debut fund, Great North Labs, uh, with partners. So it's a $23.7 million debut fund. We focus investing in startups that are headquartered in Minnesota and across the kind of Great Lakes, upper Midwest region of the U.S., although we, we can't invest anywhere. We typically make our first investments in startups during their seed rounds with a check size ranging from 250 grand to $1 million, occasionally investing in follow-on Series A and B rounds. Talk a bit about what kinds of companies do you like to invest in? Sure. Uh, we we invest in technology and technology-enabled service companies. Uh, typically, I mean, we're pretty pretty open-minded. I had some experience in B2C as well as sort of uh, B2B, so we will invest in B2B and B2C. I would say the most okay. common business models that we tend to see are more, you know, enterprise uh, SaaS, as well as online marketplaces, yeah. and every once in a while, it's consumer or social. Okay, and um, define for us seed uh, investing. Because, um, you know, I'm sure you remember in the um, earlier phase of venture capital, for me, in the, in the mid-90s, the beginning of the Internet, it was seed and series A. Today, it's pre-seed, well, it's friends and family, pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, series A, small series A, large series A. The seed capital investing has you know, fragmented. So what is your world view of seed investing? And most importantly, what do you like to see as proof points in the deals that you are comfortable going into? And maybe you want to take it as mm -hmm. B2B and B2B separately. Yeah, I, I think for us, what we mean by seed stage is uh, we're looking for startups that are post-product launch. And I always okay. think of, you know, a startup journey going through, you know, different phases. You know, the earliest phase I consider to be kind of experimentation and incubation. 
and uh, we we don't in, typically invest in that stage, but rather we're looking, you know, post-product launch as a startup is kind of an early scale-up or growth mode. Um, you know, we're looking to see evidence of at least one scalable customer acquisition method. And so that's really what we mean. I mean, often the companies we invest in are, you know, somewhere between, you know, $10,000 in monthly revenue or maybe as much as 100000 in monthly revenue. But we're, we, don't really, we don't really care so much about how much revenue they have. It's more about the qualitative aspects. Do they have scalable customer yeah. acquisition? You know, it, uh, is it something they can repeat and show us? And, uh, and yeah, so you know, we're a fund that is largely started by founders for founders. We have about uh, 40 of the most successful founders and operators in our surrounding region who have come together to launch this fund. And we think that's, uh, so from, you know, that standpoint, you know, the founders involved in our fund have all scaled successful companies across different industries and verticals in, with using technology. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we're really, you know, looking to share kind of perspective on scaling, you know, from actual entrepreneurs who have been there and done that before. We can't hear you, Rob. Can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, sorry about that. So, um, what is the situation in the Minneapolis area for the kind of companies that you're looking for? What is the scale of the deal flow? How active are the entrepreneurs, etc.? Yeah, so I, I would imagine that, you know, Twin Cities is like many cities in the world um, that are maybe kind of got a corporate mindset. We actually have the most, the largest amount of Fortune 500 companies per capita in the, in the U.S. And so that is sort of kind of, uh, I would say our schools and universities over the past decades have tended to skew more towards uh, management of, you know, classical management in terms of education. I think more recently there's kind of a surge in more, you know, startup management and innovation processes and practices from the schools yeah. and universities here. You know, on the funding side, we have the second largest uh, by cities in the Midwest. Chicago ranks number one for the largest number of first-round fundings annually. Chicago produces mm -hmm. something like 150 per year of first-round funded companies. The Twin Cities is actually second, uh, coming in at around 40 over the last couple of years. And, uh, obviously, a big there's a much bigger gap between Chicago and the Twin Cities than the Twin Cities in the next 10 to 20 cities. Uh, but, it, you know, it's pretty healthy. We're pretty dominated by healthcare and life sciences, medical device, although there, you know, we're, there's a growing group of sort of software, you know, oriented uh, investors here, including Great North Labs. So, um, if you were to, you know, assess how many companies in your sweet spot are um, operating at at, a, at this point, how many would that be? Uh, I think in the Twin Cities, you know, it's in the dozens, uh, maybe. Yeah, I would say, but we look at deals all around the region, so that's definitely in, a, you know, many hundreds. Okay. All right. Interesting. 
Let's talk about a few of the companies that you have invested in. And as you're you know, describing some of the case studies, talk about when they came to you, what did they have, how did you find them or how did they find you, and what was it about them that compelled you to write those checks? Sure, happy to. So in terms of our current fund, because it's a relatively newer fund, our average hold is 16 months. So it's a little too early to kind of share the whole journey. But as I mentioned, I had a pre-fund track record along with my partner, Ryan, that goes back uh, 10 plus years. So maybe I can share three stories from that. One of them is a company in Minneapolis called Field Nation. Field Nation is the North American leader in sourcing field IT workers. So yeah. also based on Minneapolis is a company called Best Buy. Uh, they acquired a services company that was also started here called Geek Squad. I'm not sure where everyone who's listening in the world is, but Geek Squad was a W2 platform for field IT service work. Uh, and it's really become an anchor to the growth of Best Buy over the last decade or two as they transitioned away from retail model to services revenues. Well, Field Nation is like the Uber of field IT workers. They are the leader in North America. Uh, it's a 1099 kind of work, work uh, worker platform. And uh, we funded that one about 12 years ago. The founder, Manuel Khan, is an immigrant to the US. He was actually my brother's computer science lab partner at a local state university uh, known as St. Cloud State. Uh, he reached out to my brother actually to join as an advisor initially. And he was actually interning at another company we were involved with and going to school full-time while starting Field Nation. Uh, we invested $100,000 along with bringing on one friend uh, who joined for $100,000. And we helped my new bootstrap that company for seven years uh, until he raised a $30 million kind of growth and recapitalization round. We've since exited yeah. Uh, much of our position to the private equity later state fund. There are a couple of other ones. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia, we invested in a founder named Char, who started a, a music uh, licensing tracking technology called Neurotic Media. Uh, we mm -hmm. sold that company to Peloton in 2008. Peloton, of course, is the you know very famous you know uh, cycling fitness uh, subscription business that's kind of taken the world by storm, headquartered in New York. Uh, Neurotic Media, uh, what we saw in that one was actually sourced by a friend of mine who was in corporate development at a kind of mid-sized publicly traded e-commerce company here in Minneapolis. He mentioned uh, Neurotic Media to me in passing 10 years ago as kind of an interesting startup. So I that, caused, that piqued my interest, and I called up uh, Shahar, and we invested about, uh, I think it was around 2008. And then the third mm -hmm. one was Zencoder. Uh, Zencoder was a, uh, you know, people who upload videos to say TikTok, YouTube, or other online or mobile video services don't really appreciate the technology that goes into video encoding because of the work of companies like Zencoder, which we invested in in 2010. Zencoder had the idea to build, uh, if you remember prior to 2010 timeframe, when YouTube was kind of starting to take off, it was very challenging to put a video on. Uh, it would suck up all your PC or Mac resources and be really cumbersome. So Sencoder created a, a cloud-based video encoding 
Uh, we sold that to a publicly traded company about a year or two after we invested Brightco. We made that investment alongside Andreessen Horowitz and uh, uh, another uh, famous kind of investor, Chris Saka. So we, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. Zencoder at the time was based out of Minneapolis and Madison, Wisconsin, uh, although they went through one of the early Y Combinator classes. So those are a few examples. I, you know, actually in the Zencoder case, I knew John Dahl, one of the co-founders, was just someone socially I got to know in the founder community in the city we live. Uh, so that was just kind of, uh, you know, that's how we sourced that one. Okay. So um, a couple of questions emerge out of what you said. Um, and I'll ask them in sequence. Um, let me ask the first one, which is, um, what is currently the dynamic of companies building out of Minnesota? You talked about Zencoder that has raised money from Andreessen Horowitz, was in Y Combinator, but what is the dynamic? Did they move to Silicon Valley or they continue op continued operating from Wisconsin, uh, you know, Madison and Minneapolis? Uh, you know, initially Zencoder uh, maintained their operating business here, but then I think they kind of received some pressures, you know, and this is about 10 years ago now, to kind of relocate to the Bay Area. Uh, and so they did do that. In the case of Field Nation, which has actually grown quite a bit more than, you know, Zencoder ever even did, you know, they maintain their headquarters, you know, here in Minneapolis and continue to grow to this day. And so I think that, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's that was a, you know, that was probably one of the things, you know, maybe one of the challenges of maybe working with like Y Combinator or, you know, whatever they kind of, there were certainly some pressures there felt. I don't know if that's true today, but it, it certainly seemed to be the case being partners in Zencoder. Uh, but I, I, I think, think operationally, most of us. Yeah. Sorry, I was going to say increasingly, I think people are very, very comfortable with. Um, companies being elsewhere, and, and COVID has just accelerated that trend. So that's why I'm, I was asking you this question more in a contemporary sense, not what happened 10 years ago. 10 years ago, the dynamics were very different. Silicon Valley still operated in the mode that we like our company headquarters to be here within, you know, 30 minutes of drive time. But, uh, but I think that is changing, and, and I'm, what I'm trying to gauge is, since you work with Silicon Valley investors and companies in, in the Midwest, what are you seeing now in the last six months in particular? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, in the last 10 or 20 years here in the U.S., you know, there's been a lot of efforts to build capacity around the country, including here in the Twin Cities and the surrounding region. Uh, we now have a number of early stage funds. We have, you know, the Twin Cities, by way of example, has over 20 accelerators. Uh, we, mm -hmm. You don't need to go to Y Combinator. You know, Techstars has multiple programs in the Twin Cities. Uh, probably the, the most dominant accelerator in the Midwest is actually nationally ranked, I think, just around 10 is an accelerator program called Generator. And so, you know, you can get the benefits of the mentorship and things from accelerators. Uh, and we certainly have no shortage of large corporates if you're selling to the enterprise or what have you. So I do think, you know, that's what's changed. You know, I started my company when I was 20 years old, 20 years ago. And, you know, the amount the capacity to support us was very, very weak, you know, in the early yeah. 2000s. And that's, you know, to the benefit. And I, I sense that probably this is true around the world, as pointed out. Like, I think it's, there's much more willingness 
you know, to kind of support companies wherever they may be these days. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the thing that is very uh, encouraging right now is that, as you pointed out, your preference is to invest in companies that have already achieved product market fit and are kind of in the early growth stage. Um, Silicon Valley investors, especially if they're investing in companies elsewhere, they all have that mindset. They all want product market fit already, you know, having been achieved, and they want to see an early growth stage company. So, um, and that is a lot cheaper to do outside of Silicon Valley than in Silicon Valley. It's very, very difficult these days in Silicon Valley to to do bootstrapping. So, if you're expecting that the company would have bootstrapped to a certain degree of, you know, traction, that is not so easy to do in Silicon Valley. So, yeah, um, I agree. I saw some data that kind of reflect. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 go ahead. Please finish. I'll ask another question, but go ahead. I was going to say, I saw. I saw some data that reflected this in PitchBook, I think in, from Q1 2020 this year, that the median kind of seed round in the, in the entire U.S. was about 9 or $10 million was the valuation. You know, our median valuation, we've done 22 deals now in the last three years, has been $5.5 million, so almost, almost half. And I don't think it's because – and actually, I don't think it's a detriment of the founders necessarily. You might think, why are they valued lower? You know, almost half of the, you know, the national average, which is obviously dominated by the coast. I think, you know, the cost of living drives much lower, you know, salaries and, and operating costs in general. And so you end up with, you know, most of the founders have the ability to maintain higher ownership when they're based out here than, say, San Francisco or maybe New York. So I think it is a... I think it's actually a great place to start a company these days. Yeah, and here in One Million by One Million, we are huge believers in bootstrapping, as you know. So uh, we we very much encourage people to bootstrap first and, first and raise money later. I think it creates much healthier term sheets and much healthier trajectories. But it is, it is hard to do in such expensive uh, cost structure situations. So my other question out of what you said is um, about the structure uh, and strategy you're following for your own fund. You, said, you described a couple of case studies where you exited into follow-on rounds of funding, like the 30 million round, you exited into the 30 million round. Um, so talk a bit about how you're thinking about um, you know, early exits and, and uh, not playing this game of building unicorns and blah, blah, blah. Well, there's kind of on a couple of maybe uh, points to unpack. I think, number one, we have set aside 50% of our fund reserves in follow-on round. So of the yeah. roughly you know, 24 million, I think about 12 million is for reserves. And, e and even beyond that, you know, we have a very uh, – very uh, active investor base. Uh, we can create special purpose vehicles if we desire yeah. to continue to back our portfolio companies. But yeah. I, I do think the unicorn kind of mania is a little bit overhyped. I think capital efficiency is underhyped. I'm a little bit overhyped. Yeah. I think 
So I boot, bootstrapped a company out of the dorm rooms to 70 million in revenue and 10 million in EBITDA. It did take us 12 years. You know, my new Ocon, I can't share his sales figures, but they surpassed our own. He bootstrapped it for seven years. I think for yeah. us, though, when we think about exit, it's more about, you know, it has more to do with the, the, the what we think is the possible growth rate of the investment. If it, you know, we're looking for things that can kind of outgrow, you know, what you can find in public markets. So things that can, you know, typically grow 50 to 100% over a sustained period. And most of these c- startups, as they kind of mature and maybe get to the latter part of their growth stages, you know, you're going to start seeing their growth rates slow down. And so that's when we will usually look to, you know, uh, in the case of, you know, for example, we didn't take a full liquidity. We still have some ownership, but, you know, we'll take some chips off the table. And I think that's all healthy. I actually think we have a more, that's another thing that's evolved the last 10 years. There's a more vibrant secondary market. Uh, later yeah. stage investors are more willing to acquire, to kind of clean up the cap table. And even yeah. uh, even beyond that, investors seem more interested in participating in secondaries. And so, and I think you see this also as one reason why the IPO market has sort of been pushing later and later and later. And, oh. you know, you see these mega IPOs now. It's because, of, because and I think this is all very healthy, right, to have more liquidity options. And, that, and I even think that's true for founders. You know, many times founders are able to take some liquidity or early employees from their, you know, stock options or what have you. Uh, and I think that's all really healthy to kind of just help them with their own risk and personal well-being. Yeah, and uh, you know these larger funds can start investing only at like five million, seven million check sizes, which means that they're you know coming in much later in the game, and it takes a while to get that early bootstrapping phase going and and the and, and the the investment world is completely segmenting into the the ones who play in that early stage versus the ones who play in, in the later stage and and I think the phenomenon that you're describing is I'm seeing more and more of that is that you know people play the early stage and then exit into the series A or series B and that's a perfectly fine fund strategy for a small fund Yeah, All totally right. Agree. Great. Um, good to good to have a view into your path.